Amen. All right, kiddos, you can be dismissed to your classes. The rest of us are going to turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And actually, we're going to start reading in chapter 11, verse 27. So Genesis 11, verse 27. Sorry to throw a curveball at you, media team. All right. 11, verse 27, says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Um, Title of our message this morning is Faithful in Our Fear. Faithful in our fear. Uh, If you're a college football fan, you turned on the TV Monday night for about maybe five minutes, and the game was pretty much over. Uh, Georgia blew out TCU. Um, Whether or not TCU actually showed up or the Bulldogs were just that good, I don't know. But it was kind of a letdown, kind of an anticlimax to the, the season, right? It was a disappointment. A significant storyline in the book of Genesis is the disappointment of humanity. God creates man and woman in his image uh, to, to bear and reflect his nature. But man, again and again, is a disappointment. Adam and Eve fall and have to be uh, kicked out of the garden Cain, the first child born, ends up being a murderer. After God destroys the world with a flood, it's like time to hit reset, right? And Noah and his boys, what happens with Noah? Noah gets drunk and naked and is an embarrassment once again to humanity. And then after that, you have the Tower of Babel, where everybody is basically... Unified, but for the wrong reason. They're unified against God. And God has to scatter them. So again and again, we see this disappointment of humanity. Um, But there's also a parallel storyline that's going on in Genesis 1 through 11 as well. The grace of God. So now we're going to get here to chapter 12 or the end of chapter 11, end of 12, and Genesis is going to have this big shift. 1 through 11 has been recounting all these universal events that affect the entire world and all of humanity, creation, the fall, the flood, the dispersion at Babel. But now, chapter 12 is going to zoom in on one man, one family, and give us the history of, of Israel. But 
we're going to find more of what we found in chapters 1 through 11. We're going to find a lot of sin. We're going to find a lot of failure. We're going to find a lot of fear. I think fear is one thing, whether we admit it or not, that most of us can kind of sympathize with. It's kind of a common experience of humanity. Uh, And even sometimes panicking in fear. When we've done something wrong or some kind of the circumstances are uh, against us or whatever, we have a tendency to panic. Right? Um, I've told you the story of how one day when I was delivering auto parts, my first real job, um, how I had two accidents driving the truck in one day. Um, the first one, I'm messing with this thing here. The first one, I actually was riding down Merrimack. And went off the road just slightly, but enough to sideswipe a mailbox and knock out the passenger side window. Um, I'm pretty sure I've shared that before. But what I didn't share was my excuse for how that happened when I got back and had to explain to my boss how that happened. Um, I was embarrassed. Um, and so my explanation, not, not this is terrible. My explanation was, I saw a rabbit cross the road, and so I swerved to miss it. That was my explanation. Another, another time, I could go on like all morning with bad decisions or bad choices I've made in, in the moment of panic. But don't look down on me, you could too, okay? Um, so here's a story that I've never told anybody. This was years ago. Um, I was out of town, so I wasn't around here. And I was sitting in traffic. It was probably about 4 or 5 o'clock in the day. Traffic was fairly heavy. And I accidentally uh, rear-ended a truck in front of me. And so I was like, oh, man, I don't want to deal with this. And the truck uh, in front of me went off uh, the road, went into this shopping center so we could look at the damage and stuff. And I did not. In a moment of panic, I kept going. In fact, where I needed to go was just around the corner, and I drove a mile or two out of my way uh, so I wouldn't have to deal with this instance. Now, thankfully, the it's not a redeeming part of the story, but thankfully, I had no damage on the front of my car, and there's no way that there would have been any damage on the other side of this car. Now, I don't think I've shared that story with anyone before. Um, Panic. But panic can make a fool out of anyone. Can it? This morning, in this passage of Scripture, the main application and truth that we're going to center on is God is faithful even when we panic. Even when life circumstances come, or our own failure, we make bad decisions, God is even faithful then. 
So I told you that we're in this passage that is a huge transition, huge shift in the rest of the book. 1 through 11 kind of stands on its own and all these universal events. But then 12 through really the rest of the Pentateuch, the rest of the first five books of the Bible are all going to focus on uh, the, Israel, the, the history of Israel. But God is faithful even when we panic. I've got five points this morning. They're just going to follow the, the action of the text. First of all, God called. God called, verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. If we were just reading this passage of Scripture, we might think that God calls Abram when he is in Haran. But actually, if we look at Acts chapter 7, it's gonna, Stephen was very explicit that the first original call came to Abram when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. And so it is um, possible that God is giving Abram a uh, calling him once again, once he gets to Haran. But it looks like, once we put the passages together, what is happening is that God calls Abram, and there's no good reason for that. Other than the kindness and benevolence of Almighty God. Abram's not a real impressive guy. In fact, the book of Joshua tells us that he was a, poly, uh, uh, a, a polytheist before he came to faith in God. He served other gods. Why did God choose Abraham? His own, for his own purposes. And so God calls Abraham with this benevolent call, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So if we put the passages together, the way I understand it, what it looks like is Abram gets this call in Ur, which is in modern, around modern-day Iraq, most likely. There could be some other locations where it could be. He leaves and he goes off to Haran. That's like a 600-mile trek uh, north. And he probably has a type A father who says, oh, well, I'm going to go with you. And so Tara packs up all his stuff and kind of comes along. And if you know anybody type A, they tend to have a tendency to run the show, don't they? But it looks like what's happening at the end of chapter 11, that for literary purposes, the author, Moses, is telling us about the life of Tara. So he can go ahead and get him off the scene and talk about Abraham for the rest of the time. And so when they're in Haran, Terah dies, uh, but Abraham has already responded to that call, even though his father has kind of attached himself to him to go with him to, to Haran. All right, God called. We get to verse 2. We see that God promised. God promised. Verse 2. Do this, go leave your country, your kindred, your father's house, go to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promises several things here. And notice that these are I will 
type of promises. The only real condition that we, we have here is for Abraham to leave his country, kindred, and father's house and follow God's direction. Other than that, other than those conditions, we have God, God revealing what he's going to do. All right? So these things that God promises, he promises that he's taking him to a land. There'll be more on that as we go through Genesis and even in this passage today. He's going to make of him a great nation. Abram, we've already read, Sarah has had no children. Abram is about 70, 75 at this time. Sarai is about 10 years behind him. She's 65. God's gonna, but God promises to make a great nation out of him. God promises to make a great name out of him, which we've already seen in Genesis at the Tower of Babel. What were they trying to do? Make a great name for themselves. But God says he's going to make a great name out of, of Abram. Uh, he offers him divine protection. I'm going to bless those who bless you. Those that dishonor you, I will curse. But then he promises that Abram is going to be the channel of blessing for all the families of the earth. He says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the blessing is not just going to be for one particular uh, group of people, one particular tribe, but it's going to eventually be for all the people in all the families of the earth. So five times you see bless or blessing in this passage. Like God is choosing to pour out his blessing on this, this one man. Now, we should be careful and pick notice the details of here. Because some of these things, yes, they might be applicable to us in the call of, of Abram. But most of these things were just for a specific call for Abram. God is not promising to make out of you a great nation or to necessarily bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. These were for Abram. And remember, our background here in chapter 11 was the Tower of Babel. You had all this junk, all this mess going on. But out of that, God is going to bring blessing out of junk. And God is declaring his, his purposes. And the only condition that he gives Abram is to leave his country, kindred, and father's now, Abram responds. Thirdly, Abram went. So God called, God promised, Abram went. He responded to the call of God. When God calls us, we better respond with urgency. Verse 4, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And when they set out to go to the land of Canaan, or they set out to go to the land of Canaan, when they came to the land of Canaan. Uh, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. 
So God reveals more about the promise when he actually gets to Canaan. And he tells him, I'm going to give your offspring this land. And we will find out even more about the land. But it is an a, uh, essential part of these promises that God is making to Abram. Verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So he's in the land of Canaan here at this time, but God has not necessarily given it to him yet. He is a sojourner there because there are inhabitants in the land of of Canaan. But notice that Abram leaves a trail of altars as he goes through Canaan. Um, We might wonder why that is. Sidney Gordanus, he said this, In this land, not the Canaanite gods, but the Lord will be king. This is the Lord's country. We can liken Abram's actions to that of the American soldiers in the Second World War raising the American flag on the island of Iwo Jima in the Pacific Ocean. Abram is planting the Lord's flag at strategic locations in the Promised Land, thereby proclaiming that this is a land where the Lord will be worshipped. Notice, Abram responds, he follows God's leading, and he worships. We might get narrower calls on our life, like God calls someone to preach. God calls someone to a geographic location. God calls someone to to be a, a teacher, or God calls someone to different things. But know this, any narrower call that God places on our life is preceded by the call to follow and worship him. First and foremost, that's what we are called to do, to follow and worship God. Next in the passage, we see Abram went, then he went down. So he's here in Ur of the Chaldees, and he's going southwest into Canaan, but then something happens, and he keeps going out of the land. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was very severe in the land. Okay, we're going to see the hero of the faith, one of the heroes of the faith, not being very heroic. Because scripture never hides the warts of Old Testament saints. Uh, Scripture drags out the skeletons that are in their closets. And so Abram, when in this situation of a famine occurring in Canaan, he, he panics a little bit. The, the author doesn't give us any editorial comments on here, but we do know God's called uh, Abram to the land. But what does Abram do? He seems to panic a little bit and leave the land and go to Egypt. And I really believe because Abram panicked, left the land, he forfeited an opportunity to see God miraculously preserve his family and to miraculously provide for them. But Abram's decision-making is going to get worse before it gets better. Verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. 
some kind of stand-up husband, right? Uh, he is afraid that all the Egyptians are going to see his beautiful wife, and she's 65 at this point, but she's going to live twice um, this, this age, which... Uh, we, as um, in our American type of thinking, we have a prejudice just towards physical beauty sometimes. But beauty encapsulates more than just physical beauty, right? Now, Sarah was definitely physically beautiful, but there was probably something else about, about her personality and her persona. Um, and there are some, there is going to be some merit to Abram's fears. The exact thing that he is afraid of is actually going to happen. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So I think what's going on in Abram's mind and his thinking is that in that culture, when a, uh, a, a woman or a daughter's father had passed away, a brother would kind of receive the right to negotiate her away uh, in the event of a marriage. And so Abram is, they actually are half-siblings. Um, we could go down that rabbit trail of, all oh, that's so weird, and it is weird to us today, and it wasn't until the Mosaic Law that it was that that law was given that siblings should not intermarry or half siblings or kindred. And so, probably at this point, the genetics of sin still haven't really affected uh, genetics like we know it today. And so, they were half siblings. And Abram is telling a half truth, but it's full deceit. You ever done that? Half truth, but full deceit. That's what's going on here. But Abram, he, he, has, he thinks, and the Egyptian practice was that he would have this familial, familial right to negotiate with anyone who would be interested in Sarai. Um, additionally, he's probably thinking that this might buy him some time if one of the Egyptians are interested. So he is plotting, he is strategizing, but it's soon going to get out of hand because it's not just the common Egyptians that are, that draw, are drawn to Sarai, but Pharaoh himself and the princes of Pharaoh. And so this whole thing is going to snowball to where now it is out of Abram's hands. Um, he's not going to be able to control this. And this whole time, we don't know how long, but Pharaoh deals well with Abram, giving him flocks and sheep and everything. And this is Crazy, and at the same time, Abram is probably thinking, how in the world am I going to get out of this? I have gone out of the land that God told me to, and I've gotten myself in this predicament. What in the world am I going to do? And during the whole time, this is a, di- a season of disobedience in Abram's life, but during the whole time, what is happening? God is blessing Abram. That's not what we expect. We would expect God to discipline him. I think part of the discipline is allowing him to be caught up in his own strategies. God's not, but know that God is not blessing Abram here for his bad choices. He is blessing Abram because he said he would. We get caught up in this formula sometimes. We think, 
Obedience equals blessing of God, or even material blessing of God, and that's not true. But notice the next action in our passage. Abram went down, but God afflicted. So there's sin and disobedience involved, and God is going to afflict. But the issue is, God is going to, not going to afflict the ones that we expect him to afflict. We think, oh, Abram's the one living in disobedience, so God's really going to let him have it. But that's not what, what's, what happens here. God is faithful to, to his word, um, despite the uh, short-sightedness of Abram's decisions. Verse 17, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. What is happening here? God is doing exactly what he said at the beginning of the chapter. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. They have taken Abram's wife, even though it had to do with Abram's own bad decision-making. And God is being faithful to it and doing exactly what he said he would. Verse 18, So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. We don't know how he found out. But he did. And so he keeps talking. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Get out of my sight. Do you see what you're causing on my people? These great plagues? And Pharaoh gave man orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Remember the original audience here that is reading this book is probably that audience of the generation of Deuteronomy that's fixing to go into the promised land. It was their parents who God rescued out of Egypt. And there are a lot of parallels with the Exodus and what just happened here. A famine brought Abraham and his people into Egypt. Abram and his people are in this situation that they can't get out of. God causes plagues, and then the Egyptians chase them out of the land. Give them a proper escort. And so this is also meant to build the, recounting the story, builds the faith of the generation that is reading this. Um, but this, we, we look at this and we're like, why in the world is this story even shared? And particularly, why is it shared after the promises that God gives? Well, this, this narrative here, this Egyptian narrative in the life of Abram, it's a reminder that mankind can't get out of his own way. God makes a promise to Abram. But what happens? More failure, more disappointment, more sin. But despite the fact that we can't get out of our own way, God is faithful and he will accomplish his purposes and his promises despite the frailty of man. And there's a lot of rest in that truth. And it's meant to, we're meant to find rest in that truth. That God is faithful. Now, God is making some special promises to Abram and to Abram's seed. 
But we look in the New Testament and we see further promises of God that are for us. And we can rest in the promises and the faithfulness of God. And so this is very much a transition chapter for us going from all these universal events. And I can't overemphasize how enough, how important these promises are that God has made in verses 1 through uh, 3. These promises are going to be the very foundation of the rest of the Old Testament and really the rest of Scripture. And these, these promises that God makes, yes, Israel's going to be blessed by them, but even we find blessing through these promises today that it was through the seed of Abraham that the Messiah came, the Savior of the world. And their rejection of their Messiah meant that the message was turned to the Gentiles, to us. And so we find blessing in these promises. So this is huge uh, in, in developing our theology and our understanding of the rest of Scripture and the rest of the theme or the rest of our study here in Genesis. But back to this idea, God is faithful even when we panic. Perhaps you sinned in a moment of panic. And maybe it's still hanging over your head. Let me read 2 Timothy 2. Second Timothy 2, 12 and 13, it says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. So verse 12, it seems like there are competing ideas here, but they're not. Uh, if we deny him, he will deny us. But if we're faithless, he remains faithful. It seems like those are in contradiction, but they're not. Because there's a difference between a denying life, a denying lifestyle, and a faithless act. Do you get that? A denying lifestyle means you've never been born again. But a faithless act is something that happens because of this flesh that we still deal with. God is faithful. Even in moments that we have made bad decisions. That there is forgiveness available. Even when we panic, even when we're stupid. (laughs) Right? And we've all been there. And we're looking this morning at the the most revered person that's ever walked the earth up to this point. If you were to take a poll in the world right now, the most popular person would be, a most popular historical person would be Abram. The Muslims revere him. Jews revere him. Christians revere him. And here he is in a very unheroic act in his life. But listen, an act doesn't have to be your lifestyle. 
Fellowship can be restored so you don't have to live in a lifestyle of denial or live in a lifestyle of panic. God is faithful. We're going to see it again and again through the pages uh, as we go through Genesis. And it's all settled on God's word. God is going to do what he said he would do. When God says something, we can take it to the bank. Amen? Amen. Worship team is going to come forward. We're going to bow our heads and pray. In a moment, the worship team is going to play some music. We invite you to make use of this platform up here as an altar. Abram built altars as he went through the land, presumably sacrificing on those altars. They were places of worship. We invite you this morning to use this this altar as a place of worship, some kind of conversation that you need to have with God. Something that you need to get right. Maybe you have never entered a relationship with God. Your fellowship with him can't be restored if you've never entered a relationship with him. And so we invite you to do that this morning. You can do it where you're at. We can help guide you in that. All it is is putting your faith and trust in Christ. Recognizing you're a sinner. Pleading pleading out. Calling out to God. Saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I cannot fix my own life. I cannot fix my sin. I need you to save me from my sin. And I want you to be my Savior. Your life can change this morning. But maybe you are at the other place where you have had fellowship with God before. And something has happened. Maybe there's some fear in your life. And you need that restored. The awesome thing, 1 John, this relational forgiveness, restoration of fellowship that we have in God is based on His faithfulness and His justice. It's the basis of those for the cross. And it all goes back to the gospel. So whatever you need to do with in your relationship with the Lord this morning, do it. Don't waste any more time. You can have fellowship restored. You can have a relationship established this morning. God is faithful. He'll be the most faithful being in your life that you could ever have. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. We are weak, we are frail, we don't see the end from the beginning. We are limited by time, we are limited by space. We have so many limitations. And they blind us. They blind us to the light of the world. Lord, thank you that you are faithful even when we make dumb decisions, even in the midst of fear and panic. So God, strengthen our relationships with you this morning. In Jesus' name I ask this, amen.
Amen. Would you stand to your feet? The worship team is going to begin singing. We just open up this place as a place for, for prayer and a time for us to talk with one another.